episode 139 of the Truth Quest podcast, the truth about Clarence Thomas, the master dissenter. Before we get started, I want to ask you to do me a favor and share the show. If you're on social media and topics such as Clarence Thomas, Rush Limbaugh, politically induced mental illness, totalitarianism, or the Paris Climate Accord comes up, please share the topic-specific TruthQuest episode with your debate partner. Episodes are available on a host of platforms, including iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, BitChute, Brighteon, ThinkSpot, Rumble, and Instagram, where I post a short highlight of each show at instagram.com forward slash truthquestpodcast. Whatever platform you are listening to this on, please take a moment and give it a five-star rating or leave a positive review. Another way you can help grow the show is to throw a small donation my way at the TruthQuest Podcast patronage page. All donations will be used to drive awareness of the podcast through online advertising. See this episode's show notes page at truthquest.podbean.com for details. And finally, please join the conversation on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash truthquestpodcast. So why produce an episode on Clarence Thomas now? Well, I have plenty of reasons to do so, primarily given my constant refrain of asking the question, where in the Constitution, when discussing public policy. Listen to episode 3 for more on that. After all, there are only a few living Americans who consistently ask that same question. One of them is Clarence Thomas. That ties in well with episode 137, The Truth About Post-Constitutional America. But it finally came together last week when a caller into the Rush Limbaugh show told the substitute host that there are two people he looks up to, Rush and Clarence Thomas. So as we welcome Amy Coney Barrett and Brent Kavanaugh to the court and say goodbye to Ruth Bader Ginsburg, I think this generation needs to know a little bit about Thomas, where he came from, his judicial philosophy, and then draw their own conclusions about the truth behind the Democrats' fickled claims of standing up for minorities and how it plays out in real life with people like Clarence Thomas. I consider this a companion episode to the last one, The Truth About Rush Limbaugh, because of the treatment both of them receive from the left and the corporate press. Few people besides Rush, Thomas, and Trump have been the target of lies, propaganda, character assassination, and in the case of Thomas, racism from the left. Let's start out with a brief biography of Thomas, courtesy of JusticeThomas.com. Born on June 23, 1948, in the small coastal community of Pinpoint, Georgia, a community founded by freed slaves after the Civil War. He grew up in the segregated South of the Jim Crow era. Thomas's father deserted his family when Thomas was young. For the first six years of his life, he lived in a house with no indoor plumbing and no electricity. He described the house as poor but clean. When Thomas was seven, his mother sent Clarence and his younger brother Myers to live in the home of his maternal grandparents, Myers and Christine Anderson, in Savannah. His grandfather's influence on Thomas was so profound that he called him Daddy and titled his 2007 memoir, My Grandfather's Son. In his memoir, Justice Thomas wrote of his grandfather, quote, He was the one hero in my life. What I am is what he made me, end quote. His grandfather believed in work and that rights come with responsibilities. According to his book, Mr. Anderson told the seven-year-old Clarence that the damn vacation is over the very morning he moved in. Thomas attended a segregated Catholic school in Savannah. The nuns also had an incredible impact on his life, as did his grandfather. Thomas did not attend an integrated school until he entered the seminary in the 10th grade. Thomas remembers, quote, The nail in the coffin of my vocation was in the spring of 1968 when Dr. King was assassinated. 
I was going back into the dorm to my dormitory and someone said in front of me, when I heard that Dr. King had been assassinated, he said, well, that's good. And that was it. That was the end of the seminary. That was the end of the vocation. That was the end of all practical purposes of my Catholic faith. His grandfather kicked him out of the house after he quit the seminary. But Thomas later attended the College of Holy Cross in Massachusetts and Yale Law School with the likes of future Associate Justice Samuel Alito and Bill and Hillary Clinton. He came out of the law school with big debt in 1974 and could not find a job. He finally found a $10,000 a year job in Jefferson City, Missouri, working for the state's attorney general, John Danforth. Quote, and the biggest negative was that it didn't pay much money, and he was a Republican. But I had to swallow hard, go out to Missouri and work for a dreaded Republican, Thomas said. Steve Cross, during a 60-minute interview, asked him, you were still a liberal Democrat at that point. And Thomas said, I was never a liberal. I was radical. I was cynical. I was negative, but I was never a liberal. I always saw that as too lukewarm for me, said Thomas. When Dan Forth was elected to the U.S. Senate in 1976, Thomas went to work for Monsanto in its legal department. He moved to Washington, D.C. to join Senator Danforth's staff in 1979. He switched parties to vote for Ronald Reagan, whose belief in hard work and personal initiative, Thomas says, were more consistent with the way he had been brought up. After Ronald Reagan was elected president in 1980, Thomas was nominated and confirmed to be an assistant secretary of civil rights at the Department of Education and then chairman of the Equal Opportunity Commission for eight years from 82 to 90. In 1989, President George H.W. Bush nominated Thomas for a seat on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit. He was confirmed in 1990. The following year, President Bush nominated Thomas to the Supreme Court of the United States, and after a controversial and contentious confirmation process, Thomas was confirmed by the U.S. Senate and became the 106th Justice, only the second black American to serve on the nation's highest court. Thomas is married to Virginia Lamp Thomas and has one son, Jamal, from a previous marriage. Justice Thomas's extraordinary journey from the segregation and poverty of Jim Crow, Georgia, to the Supreme Court of the United States is one that all Americans can admire and for which all Americans should be grateful. And I'll add my own little commentary in here. It is not only is he not admired by Democrats and leftists, but he's openly mocked and ridiculed to the extent that if he had, was a liberal African-American, the cries of racism would cascade from the mountaintops indefinitely. Finally, for fun, he and his wife travel the country in an RV, if you can believe that. And he's a big sports fan. The Nebraska Cornhuskers, the Dallas Cowboys, and NASCAR. So as you may recall, I produced an episode on Ruth Bader Ginsburg, episode 115, to provide a different perspective to the glowing press coverage the notorious RBG, as her fans called her, was getting. She was a trailblazer in some respects, but her jurisprudence was largely unimpressive. On the other hand, the much maligned Clarence Thomas is both a trailblazer and an impressive jurist, but the press never seems to say a nice thing about him. I wonder why that is. If the left actually believed their bullshit rhetoric about diversity and inclusion, people like Clarence Thomas, only the second African-American Supreme Court justice, would be fawned over and held up as a standard for all of us to aspire to. I mean, look at the coverage Obama, the first African-American president, got. Kamala Harris, the first African-American Jamaican Indian descent woman of color to be vice president. I mean, these people have rhetorical orgasms talking about people's skin color. 
So why don't the likes of Walter Williams, Thomas Sowell, Larry Elder, Candace Owens, Senator Tim Scott, Dr. Ben Carson, and Clarence Thomas get that same kind of treatment? Thomas remains known mostly for his contentious confirmation hearing, his conservative record, and his virtual silence during oral arguments, which his racist critics used to question his intellect. In 2004, when Mr. Thomas's name was floated as a possible replacement for the ailing Chief Justice William Rehnquist, then-Senate Minority Leader Harry Reid called him a, quote, embarrassment to the court and attacked his opinions as poorly written. That's because dingy Harry Reid is an embarrassment to the human race and a disgraced, soul-to-soul-to-the-devil racist Democrat hack. But that's just me. Thomas has been subjected to racism his entire career, you know, at least based on the definition of racism during the Obama years, in which we were told that if you disagreed with his politics and his ideology, you were a racist because, you know, Obama's black. Well, Thomas has been treated like shit by Democrats, the corporate press, and left-wingers his entire career. All of them hate Thomas because he is a conservative. But his worst sin is being a black conservative. That, my friends, is racist. He is arguably the most influential black man in the country, yet he is reviled by Democrats, liberals, progressives, and anyone who hates the country and the Constitution, and he is despised by the ignorant and compliant who marinate in hate-filled disinformation and propaganda about people like the Honorable Clarence Thomas. But in many ways, he is still a radical. Over time, he came to believe that government programs designed to help blacks were ultimately demeaning and detrimental to them. He rejected decades of civil rights dogma on the grounds that it created a cult of victimization and implied that blacks required special treatment in order to succeed, postponing the day when all men and women would truly be viewed as equals. He once said, quote, It seems as though the problem with me and other people with my opinions is that we are veering away from the black gospel that we're supposed to adhere to. At the end of the day, when it comes to his critics, he told Steve Croft during that 60 Minutes interview, my job is to write opinions. I decide cases and write opinions. It is not to respond to idiocy and critics who make statements that are unfounded. For those of you who are not familiar with his Senate confirmation fiasco 30 years before the Brent Kavanaugh circus, here's a brief recap of one of the most disgusting political stunts in American history, perpetrated by the National Democrats, of course. Anita Hill, a former employee of Thomas's, had submitted a confidential statement to the Senate Judiciary Committee alleging that Thomas had sexually harassed her 10 years earlier when they were both single. The FBI had already investigated the charges and given the judiciary what was called an inconclusive report. The committee decided not to pursue the matter, but two days before the full Senate was expected to confirm Thomas, Hill's statement was leaked to the media. Sound familiar? You see, folks, the Democrats have been playing from the same seek-and-destroy playbook for decades. What they did to Kavanaugh and Trump is nothing new. Thomas summed up the hearing this way as he addressed the Judiciary Committee. Quote, This is a circus. It's a national disgrace. It's a high-tech lynching for uppity blacks who in any way deign to think for themselves, and it is a message that unless you kowtow to an old order, you will be lynched destroyed, caricatured by a committee of the U.S. Senate rather than hung from a tree, end quote. To this day, they still feel entitled to insult his qualifications, his intelligence, and his record. I want to spend a few minutes on Thomas's judicial philosophy because that is where his legacy is most profound. 
Thomas's philosophy stands on a few simple propositions. The Constitution means today what it meant at the time of its ratification. It created a limited national government bound strictly by a separation of powers and a balance with the authority of sovereign states. Thomas rejects social engineering in favor of individual liberty grounded in natural law. In his dissents, he has held true to this understanding of the Constitution, even if it has meant casting aside fashionable opinion and decades of judicial precedent and earning the criticism of political and media elites. More on that in a minute. He believes that it is not a judge's job to make social policy and that much harm can result when they try. Thomas knows that the Constitution protects natural rights, economic freedom, and private civil society from government meddling. He rejects race-based affirmative action, controls on speech or property, and bureaucratic intervention into private conduct. He would allow religious groups more participation in public life while protecting them from the heavy hand of government regulation, and he would protect the Second Amendment right for civilians to bear firearms. As for his judicial philosophy, he said, quote, I don't put myself in a category. Maybe I'm labeled as an originalist or something, but it's not my constitution to play around with. Let's just start with that. We're citizens. It's our country. It's our constitution. I don't feel I have any particular right to put my gloss on your constitution. My job is to simply interpret it. And he goes on to explain that the first place to look is in the document itself. Quote, and when I can't find something in that document or in a tradition or history around that document, then I'm getting on dangerous ground. Because that's when you drift so much more towards your own policy preferences. People can say, you are an originalist. I just think that we should interpret the Constitution as it's drafted, not as we would have drafted it. His opinions on sensitive race and gender issues have disappointed, but not surprised, civil rights and women's rights groups. When the court ruled 5-4 in 2013 that southern states no longer can be singled out for federal oversight under Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, Thomas said the entire provision was unconstitutional. He dissented from the court's 4-3 majority opinion upholding the University of Texas's use of racial preferences in admissions, arguing that all such policies violate the Equal Protection Clause. He'd rather be the Oliver Wendell Holmes of his time, the great dissenter, says former law clerk John Yao, a professor of, at the University of California Berkeley School of Law. Detailed notes and memos in the papers of the late Justice Harry Blackman, documents which are housed at the Library of Congress, show that from his first days on the bench, Thomas was an independent and forceful presence. The documentary trail shows Thomas signaled a willingness to be a lone dissenter if necessary. One of Antony Scalia's former clerks said Thomas helped, quote, helped ground the law much more in the text of the Constitution, in its history, and to start moving the court back towards an understanding of the Constitution that is consonant with what it was at the time the country was founded, end quote. In one of his dissenting opinions, Justice Thomas declared that the Supreme Court was, quote, making policy-laden judgments that we are ill-equipped and arguably unauthorized to make and that this represented, quote, functioning more as a legislators than as judges, end quote. He added, quote, the outcome of constitutional cases ought to rest on firmer grounds than the personal preferences of the judges. That firmer ground is the original meaning of a law when it was passed. If that meaning needs to be changed, then it's up to the elected officials to change it, not judges. That is what the democratic process is for. When legislators change a law, that change is announced. 
so that everyone knows what it is and not illegal from now on. But when judges change the law by reinterpreting it based on some evolving standard of the living constitution, nobody knows that they have violated the law until after the fact, when it's too late. Myron Magnet, City Journal Editor-in-Chief, had this to say in a speech at Hillsdale College last year. Quote, if the framers had wanted a constitution that evolved by judicial ruling, Thomas says they would have stuck with the unwritten British constitution that governed the American colonists in just that way for 150 years before the revolution. But Americans chose a written constitution whose meaning as the framers and the state ratifying conventions understood it does not change. In response to someone who wanted the Ten Commandments removed from a courthouse, Justice Thomas said, quote, he need not stop and read it, or even look at it, let alone express support for it or adopt the commandments as guides for his life. He has found that the use of thermal imaging technology by police to scan for marijuana in homes requires a warrant. He opposes the court's effort to place caps on punitive damages. He would bar the government from placing any regulations on political speech and commercial speech alike. His robust understanding of the First Amendment has led him to protect both violent movies and offensive protesters from state controls. Thomas explains how judges should interpret the Constitution. This was from a speech in 2001. Quote, when interpreting the Constitution and statutes, judges should seek the original understanding of the provision's text if the meaning of that text is not readily apparent. This approach works to reduce judicial discretion and to maintain judicial impartiality first by tethering their analysis to the understanding to those who drafted and ratified the text. Modern judges are prevented from substituting their own preferences for the Constitution. Second, it places the authority for creating the legal rules in the hands of the people and their representatives rather than in the hands of the judiciary. Third, this approach recognizes the basic principle of a written Constitution. We the people adopted a written constitution precisely because it has a fixed meaning, a meaning that does not change. According to Article 5, the constitution's meaning cannot be updated or changed or altered by the Supreme Court, the Congress, or the President. End quote. I titled this episode The Truth About Clarence Thomas, The Master Dissenter, because his greatest contribution to jurisprudence comes in the form of his fearless, in-your-face arguments articulated in his concurring opinions and, most importantly, in his dissenting opinions. Justice Thomas has made no secret of his dislike of past Supreme Court opinions written by other justices, including seminal opinions about abortion rights, press freedoms, and a defendant's right to a lawyer. Thomas has been criticized for his supposed lack of respect for precedent. Myron Magnet continued in that speech that I mentioned a minute ago, quote, To contemporary lawyers and law professors, the idea of annulling so-called settled law is shockingly radical. It explains why most of Thomas's opinions are either dissents from the court's ruling or concurrences in the court's ruling, but not its reasoning, often because Thomas rejects the precedent in which the majority relies, end quote. I've said this in many other episodes when I criticize the Supreme Court. They are killing the country through death by a million bad precedents. It's stupid to use stupid made-up precedent to determine new cases. Justice Thomas has always been willing to go back and overturn precedents to go back and find the original meaning of the Constitution. An entirely different view of Thomas comes from Ralph Rossum, a professor at Claremont's McKinney College and author of Understanding Clarence Thomas. 
Rossum said that Thomas disdains prior Supreme Court rulings because they get him further and further away from the original Constitution, saying, quote, if you have a finely wrought piece of furniture and you put layer on layer of paint on it, pretty soon all the details lost under the coats of paint. And what Thomas wants to do is scrape back to the bare wood to the original text of the Constitution. Even his fellow conservative, Justice Antonin Scalia, was reported by a Thomas biographer to have claimed that Mr. Thomas just doesn't believe in, in stare decisis, Latin for let the decision stand. Stare decisis is an important aspect to the Anglo-American system of precedent, deciding new cases based on what the court has done before and leaving long-established rules in place. But at the same time, he does view precedent with respect. He just doesn't feel like you need to worship it. Quote, you have people who will just constantly point out stare decisis, stare decisis, stare decisis. Then it is one big ratchet. It's something that you wrestle with. The perfect example is Brown v. Board of Education, 1954, where the Supreme Court overruled the racist separate but equal opinion in of Blessy v. Ferguson in 1896, which permitted legally enforced segregation and had been settled precedent for nearly 60 years. It is the Plessy dissent of Justice John Marshall Harlan to which Thomas points for an example of a justice putting his personal preferences aside to keep faith with the Constitution. See, Harlan was a Kentucky aristocrat and former slave owner. He believed in white superiority, if not supremacy, and wrote in Plessy that, quote, the white race would continue to be dominant in the United States in prestige, in achievements, in education, in wealth, and in power for all time. But, Harlan continued, in view of the Constitution, in the eye of the law, there is in this country no superior, dominant, ruling class of citizens. There is no caste here. Our Constitution is colorblind and neither knows nor tolerates classes among its citizens. End quote. That, for Thomas, was the great but, where Harlan's intellectual honesty trumped his personal prejudice, causing Thomas to describe Harlan as his favorite justice and even a role model. In one case, the master dissenter said that if, quote, I were a member of the Texas legislature, I would have not voted for this law that the U.S. Supreme Court is examining today. But as a member of that court, his, his duty was to vote on the constitutionality of the law, whether he agreed with it or not, and he voted that the law was constitutional. In another case, he said that the Constitution, quote, is not a license for courts to judge the wisdom, fairness, or logic of legislative choices, end quote. Again, it's up to the electoral process to do that, not the unelected judiciary. In the majority opinion of Whole Women's Health v. Helderstead, the justices who ruled in favor of abortion advocates argued the Texas law was in conflict with the 1992 Supreme Court ruling in Casey in which the court had determined that laws restricting abortions must not place, quote, an undue burden on the women seeking to terminate their pregnancy. Well, the master dissenter had a field day in his dissent on this case. His first argument was to call out his fellow judges for making shit up to get what they want. Quote, the illegitimacy of using made-up tests to displace long-standing national traditions as the primary determinant of what the Constitution means has long been apparent. The Constitution does not prescribe tiers of scrutiny. If our recent cases illustrate anything, it is how easily the court tinkers with levels of scrutiny to achieve its desired result. 
Then he backhanded the majority, arguing that made-up rights do not trump those enumerated in the Constitution, saying, quote, The court has simultaneously transformed judicially created rights, like the right to an abortion, into preferred constitutional rights, while disfavoring many of the rights actually enumerated in the Constitution. But our Constitution renounces the notion that some constitutional rights are more equal than others. A plaintiff either possesses the constitutional right he is asserting or not, and if not, the judiciary has no business creating ad hoc exceptions so that others can assert rights that seem especially important to vindicate. A law either infringes a constitutional right or not. There is no room for the judiciary to invent tolerable degrees of encroachment. End quote. Then the knockout punch. Quote, our law is now so riddled with special exceptions for special rights that our decisions deliver neither predictability nor the promise of a judiciary bound by the rule of law. End quote. Speaking of making shit up out of whole cloth, the master dissenter has said the landmark Roe v. Wade case, quote, created the right to abortion out of whole cloth without a shred of support from the Constitution's text. Can he continues, our abortion precedent are grievously wrong and should be overruled. The idea that the framers of the Fourth Amendment understood the Due Process Clause to protect a right to abortion is farcical. The Constitution does not constrain the state's ability to regulate or even prohibit abortion. This court created the right of abortion based on an amorphous, unwritten right to privacy. Amen, brother. Thomas holds special contempt for the federal administrative state. The leading Supreme Court decision in this area is Chevron versus NRDC, a 1984 case that says when Congress leaves the details of laws vague, courts should rely on federal agencies to fill in the gaps. The opinion by Justice John Paul Stevens has been cited more than 15,000 times. Thomas is among several conservative justices who have questioned the opinion's validity. Quote, Chevron compels judges to abdicate the judicial power without constitutional sanction. In a series of opinions in the past couple of years, Thomas has attacked the operations of administrative state. He has striven to restore the proper checks and balances on it and called on the courts not to defer to bureaucrats. Thomas, however, believes the Constitution's separation of powers forbids the transfer of power to make laws. Only our elected representatives, he has written, can, en can enact generally applicable laws that restrict private conduct. The legislature cannot quote, transfer the power of making laws to any other hands. He has written, quoting John Locke, quote, for it being but a delegated power from the people, they who have it cannot pass it over to others, end quote. Not only do we have bureaucrats making rules like a legislature and interpreting them like a judge, but also the interpretations amount to further lawmaking power with no checks or balances whatsoever. The master dissenter's most recent masterpiece was the Pennsylvania election fraud case, which made news last week, I'm recording this in February of 2021. Thomas had this to say in part, quote, The Constitution gives to each state legislature authority to determine the manner of federal elections. Yet both before and after the 2020 election, non-legislative officials in various states took it upon themselves to set the rules instead. As a result, we received an unusually high number of petitions and emergency applications contesting those changes. Changing the rules in the middle of the game is bad enough. Such rule changes by officials who may lack authority to do so is even worse. When those changes alter election results, 
they can severely damage the electoral process. If state officials have the authority to, they have claimed, we need to make it clear. If not, we need to put an end to this practice now before the consequences become catastrophic. Now here's the money quote. One wonders what this court waits for. We failed to settle this dispute before the election and thus provide clear rules. Now we again fail to provide clear rules for future elections. The decision to leave election law hidden beneath a shroud of doubt is baffling. By doing nothing, we invite further confusion and erosion of voter confidence. Our fellow citizens deserve better and expect more of us. I respectfully dissent. This case is yet another example why I loathe the Supreme Court. At one point, the Supreme Court refused to take up a qualified immunity case, which is a legal doctrine that often serves as a shield for police officers and other public officials accused of misconduct. Thomas chastised his fellow justices for failing to take up the case because they were concerned about, quote, litigation costs and efficiency that would occur if anyone could take a government employee, including a police officer, to court because the cost would become overwhelming and the system could become bogged down. In other words, individual rights always trump any claim by the government. Thomas has advocated for overruling New York Times v. Sullivan, a 1964 case, a defense of press freedom. It set in place standards to make it more difficult for public figures to sue for libel without proof of actual malice. Even a limited-purpose public figure, that's a court term, cannot recover under a defamation claim applying the New York Times case standard. The master dissenter called bullshit on this argument, saying he deems libel against public figures, quote, if anything, more serious and injurious than ordinary libels, end quote. Thomas has also advocated for overruling Gideon v. Wainwright, a 1963 case, which guarantees a lawyer to indigent defendants. Thomas and Gorsuch dissented in a criminal case called Garza v. Idaho, this is years later, and expressed doubt about Gideon v. Wainwright that stated the Sixth Amendment requires the government to provide counsel to poor defendants accused of serious crimes. And here's what the dissent said. In addition to breaking from this court's precedent, Today's decision moves the court another step further from the original meaning of the Sixth Amendment. The Sixth Amendment provides that in all criminal prosecutions, the accused shall enjoy the right to have the assistance of counsel for his defense. That provision, as originally understood and ratified, meant only that a defendant had a right to employ counsel or to use volunteered services of counsel. Yet the court has read the Constitution to require, get this, not only a right to counsel at taxpayers' expense, but a right to effective counsel. The court should tread carefully before extending our precedent in this area. He then continues in his dissent, as he often does, with the history lesson of the Sixth Amendment. Again, the master dissenter is pointing out the dilution of the original text and meaning of the Constitution. Thomas and Scalia dissented in another case, Barbara Gruder v. Lee Bollinger where the court upheld the University of Michigan's affirmative action admissions policy that seeks to boost minority enrollment. Thomas disagreed and accused the law school of maintaining, quote, an exclusionary admission system that it knows produces racially disproportionate results, saying, quote, racial discrimination is not a permissible solution to a self-inflicted wound of this elitist admissions policy. Thomas dissented from the court's blessing of affirmative action in Grutter v. Bollinger in 2003 because he understands the 14th Amendment's grant of equal protection of the law to all Americans to prohibit race-based government policies. 
For Thomas, defining individuals by their race violates the Constitution and harms blacks as a group. In the Gruder dissent, Thomas quoted Frederick Douglass by saying, quote, If the Negro cannot stand on his own legs, let him fall also. All I ask is, give him a chance to stand on his own legs. Let him alone. End quote. My favorite Thomas dissent is Gonzalez v. Reich, the medical marijuana case where Thomas defended state laws legalizing marijuana for medical use despite his personal objections. Thomas' dissent reads in part, Respondents Diane Morrison and Angel Reich use marijuana that has never been bought or sold, that has never crossed state lines, and that has no demonstrative effect on the national market for marijuana. If Congress can regulate this under the Commerce Clause, then it can regulate virtually anything, and the federal government is no longer one of limited enumerated powers. No truer words have ever been spoken. He goes on to say, We would do well to recall how James Madison, the father of the Constitution, described our system of joint sovereignty to the people of New York, saying, quote, The powers delegated to the proposed Constitution to the federal government are few and defined. Those who are in, to remain in the state governments are numerous and indefinite. The powers reserved to the states will extend to all the objects which, in the ordinary course of affairs, concern the lives, liberty, and properties of the people and their internal order, improvement, and prosperity to the state. That was from the Federalist Papers. He goes on, If I were a California citizen, I would not have voted for the medical marijuana ballot initiative. If I were a California legislator, I would not have supported the Compassionate Use Act. But whatever the wisdom of California's experiment with medical marijuana, the federalism principles that have driven our Commerce Clause cases require that room for experiment be protected in this case. For those reasons, I dissent. I mean, come on, folks, this is great shit. The guy is doing his job. He's interpreting the Constitution without throwing his own preferences in like every single disgusting leftist jurist does on the court on a regular basis. They should all be impeached for violating their oath of office. It gets better. His dissent goes on to say, Respondents' local cultivation and consumption of marijuana is not commerce among the several states, as he's quoting Article 1, Section 8. By holding that Congress may regulate activity that is neither interstate nor commerce under the Interstate Commerce Clause, the court abandons any attempt to enforce the Constitution's limits on federal power. The majority supports this conclusion by invoking without explanation the Necessary and Proper Clause. Regulating respondents' conduct, however, is not necessary and proper for carrying into execution Congress's restrictions on interstate drug trade. Thus, neither the Commerce Clause nor the Necessary and Proper Clause grants Congress the power to regulate respondents' conduct. And so for those of you who don't know, the Necessary and Proper Clause states that the feds have the power to invoke laws that are necessary and proper to enforce the few and defined enumerated rights, which Thomas points out, Marijuana ain't one of them. He ties up the dissent by saying, Our federalist system properly understood allows California and the growing number of other states to decide for themselves how to safeguard the health and welfare of their citizens. I would affirm the judgment of the Court of Appeals. I respectfully dissent. In Hamdan v. Rumsfeld, Hamdan being Osama bin Laden's driver and bodyguard, Thomas dissented from the majority opinion to allow a military commission trial for Hamdan. 
Thomas wrote, quote, It is clear that this court lacks jurisdiction to entertain petitioner's claim. The court, having concluded otherwise, it is appropriate to respond to the court's resolution of the merits of petitioner's claims because its opinion openly flouts our well-established duty to respect the executive's judgment in matters of military operations and foreign affairs. The court's evident belief that it is qualified to pass on the military necessity of the commander-in-chief's decision to employ a particular form of force against our enemies is so antithetical to our constitutional structure that it simply cannot go unanswered. I respectfully dissent. When legislation violates the Constitution, Justice Thomas has not hesitated to vote to strike it down, as he did with the so-called campaign finance reform McCain-Feingold bill. The court overturned portions of the campaign finance law that restricts grassroots lobbying directed at senators and congressmen facing elections. Scalia, Thomas, and Kennedy wanted to go further than Roberts and Alito by reversing the whole damn thing. Here's another example of striking down bad law. Kelo versus the city of New London. That's the infamous eminent domain case that allowed local politicians to seize property and turn it over to other private individuals. Justice Thomas opposes eminent domain not simply to protect the rights of private property, and as most conservatives do. He also opposes it because he sees it as a tool of racist oppression. He argued that the mid-century urban renewal programs used eminent domain to clear slums and improve downtown areas. After documenting the devastating effects of such policies on black communities, Thomas cast the court's support for eminent domain as a jurisprudence of ethnic cleansing, arguing that poor people will always be the victims of such policies. He said they are the least politically powerful members of society. And finally, he has written that the Constitution's ban on government establishment of religion does not apply to the states. In other words, the states are free to prefer or endorse one religion over another. In the constitutionally illiterate times in which we live, this is deemed controversial when that is the exact meaning of the constitutional provision. So, lessons learned from Associate Justice Clarence Thomas. Well, first of all, he's an example of starting from humble beginnings and making something out of your life. He is an example of how mean-spirited, evil, and malicious the left wing in America are. They trashed him during his nomination hearings and never stopped their relentless attacks on his character, intellect, and jurisprudence, all the while selling themselves as tolerant and inclusive. They are all about diversity unless your ideology differs from theirs. More importantly, and what I love about Thomas is his watchdog-like ethic of defending the original meaning of the Constitution. And like any good watchdog, they turn into an attack dog when someone breaches the fence, so to speak. Thomas has done that for three decades by writing concurring opinions that point out the constitutional flaws in the majority's opinion, and through his alter ego, the master dissenter, where he relentlessly explained to his fellow lawyers, supposedly experts on the United States Constitution, and explained to the general public at large. He explained what the Constitution means. It means what it says. Like Peter Schiff has said, it isn't hard to understand. It's not written in Chinese. We would not be staring into the post-constitutional abyss if we had had more Justice Thomases on the bench over the years. But forces of darkness are always on the hunt to tear down what is good. In this case, the Constitution. At the end of the day, he's only one man, and it will take more than one man to protect and defend the United States Constitution. And that is the truth about Clarence Thomas. Please join the conversation on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash truthquestpodcast. Podcast.